On this episode of Water Flying, we're joined by my good friend, T.R. Wood from Epic Seaplane Adventures, who the Seaplane Pilots Association just worked with in defending access to 19 Mile Bay on Lake Winnipesaukee in New Hampshire. You are listening to Water Flying, a show dedicated to all things seaplanes. Brought to you by the Seaplane Pilots Association. My name is Steve McCoy. I'm the executive director of the Seaplane Pilots Association, which is the world's largest nonprofit advocacy organization dedicated to the protection and promotion of the water flying community. Climb aboard! We're about to start today's episode. Well, welcome back to Water Flying. Once again, we are on the shores, on location, on the shores of Moosehead Lake in Maine. I've got my good friend T.R. Wood from Epic Seaplane Adventures with me. We're celebrating this week because we just had a victory at uh, 19 Mile Bay on Lake Winnipesaukee in New Hampshire. Uh, We had a challenge to waterway access there recently, and uh, we just got a ruling uh, in the last couple of days. Yes, Steve. uh, Congratulations to all the seaplane pilots out there. It was an amazing, amazing time and amazing victory. And thank goodness we're here to be able to relax and spend some time without even worrying about a battle in front of us right now. So it was a big celebration. And uh, I just, I'm happy that it all worked out the way it did. Well, it was an interesting journey. Uh, You and I really hadn't spent much time together uh, until we had the challenge. And uh, in short order, we were talking on a daily basis, and I found myself uh, uh, deep in number crunching and research and uh, getting ready uh, for what was a, an interesting battle. Uh, but before we get into that, let's just talk a little bit about you. You've got a very interesting, diverse, um, respectable background, I would say. <laughs> a little bit. Um, so I'm a third-generation pilot. Uh, my son is uh, just becoming the fourth generation right now. My grandfather was a PBY pilot in World War II, so I kind of walk in his seaplane footsteps. He flew the PBY and the PBM, uh, mostly patrolling the uh, Caribbean Mm -hmm. in World War II. And then in the Korean era, he flew the uh, uh, Berlin airlift in the uh, Navy version of the DC-4. My dad... Uh, grew up in his footsteps and uh, became a commercial airline pilot, flew for Eastern Airlines until the end, and then uh, he ended up being an expat, expat pilot and flew uh, heavy metal around the world. And uh, and then uh, I just started out flying since I could sit on a telephone book, like <laughs> most of us. And, uh, you know, I, uh, I started off on the commuters and... and made the jump to jets in a, uh, it, over to the cargo industry and flew 727s for a while. And then uh, I got on with Atlas Air and was spent some time all over the world and lived in Alaska for a while. And um, I, I, don't, I don't puff my chest out when I say this. It was just the timing of it. But at one time, I was the youngest 747 captain in the world. So that was, that was a fun experience. What a great honor. Yeah, I it, mean, was, it was pretty cool. Um, and that took you to all kinds of amazing yeah. locations, flying for Atlas. Yeah. You got to see the world. Yeah, it was really, it was, it was, it was good experience. You know, it, it, it I ended up uh, with the schedule and the way things worked out. Um, you know, I would still be there if I hadn't got picked up with the uh, airlines. Uh, so I got in 2005, I got on with, Jet blue and haven't looked back. Um, just been enjoying that. I'm in Boston and drive to work. It's like every pilot's dream. You know, I basically fly day trips. I, I don't want to rub it in anybody's face out there, but uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a good time. Um, but I want to talk about, before we go any further, so at Atlas, you told me a story that, you know, I'm a big car guy, as you know, and we've got some serious car heads, both that listen to the show and Mark Twombly that works on the magazine is a big car head as well. Phil Lockwood, our chairman of the board, is a Formula One fan. And you had a story about Formula One with Atlas that, that really was interesting. Well, it's a good thing that I'm not working there anymore because I might have gotten <laughs> fired for this story, but... Uh... Yeah, so we were transporting the Formula One team around, and uh, 
when I got on the cargo deck after all the pre-flight was done and everything, one of the loadmasters was like, "Hey, you want to check out one of these F1 cars?" And, <laughs> and I go down and I and I look at the the golden signature on the the, the leather covering. They, they they had basically a a zip covering the, over the cars, and it was Michael Schumacher's Ferrari there. And <laughs> and he goes, "You want to sit in it?" And I was like, "Get out of here! No way!" And he he unzipped the thing, and I sat down in that Ferrari. That was pretty cool. So, so you yeah. sat in Michael Schumacher's Formula One Ferrari, and and I the, am so envious. <laughs> well, the funny thing is, is that and and some people have told me that I look like him. So <laughs> it was pretty funny that uh, that that ended up happening that way. But yeah, I've flown some crazy stuff. We flew a like a billion dollar satellite one time, some oil rig stuff, uh, million multi million dollar horses. But most of the time, it was just textiles textile industry stuff going back and forth um a lot to asia and um i ended up going to south america and you you wouldn't believe what they load on those airplanes like i had a full 747 full of roses coming out of quito ecuador one time Uh, you know those are those are regular runs that are happening behind the scenes all the time that from these guys are out there grinding it out yeah 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 i'm still friends with most of them and uh like i said if if i hadn't gotten picked up by JetBlue, i'd still be there and grinding it out it's a good job but yeah well people don't realize i mean every night there's 747s going out of rice pool uh, with flowers on them loaded to the the hill (laughs) and and to kind of dovetail it into you know seaplanes um you know my first exposure to uh seaplane flying and bush plane flying was up when i was in alaska in uh you know anchorage and Virtually every one of the Alaska-based guys had a Super Cub on floats. And um, my my good buddy, and, you know, I want to kind of pay tribute, um, Bub Hallett, he uh, passed away. He was involved in an accident uh, a couple years ago now. I can't believe it's been that long. But Bub uh, took me up on my first seaplane flight, and I've got pictures of us landing in a uh, a, a river with so much salmon on it that we were, you could hear them bumping on the bottom of the floats when we landed in there and just wow. great, great memories. It was unbelievable. Yeah. yeah. And that's really what you can fun. do with these airplanes. I yeah, mean, it's incredible. And, and, and he, he kind of, you know, really inspired me to, 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 to go down this road. Not until I got on with JetBlue and started flying with one of the local legends around here. His name is uh, Dave Godin. He, uh, he and I sat down in the cockpit together and, uh, at JetBlue and, uh, he told me he had a 180 on floats and, and then, uh, I, I had had a general aviation airplane, a Cherokee six. And, um, my girlfriend at the time, she's now my wife, but, uh, she, she and I flew up here in uh, the Cherokee six up to the airport. And, uh, that was our first experience. And Dave Godin took me flying up around Kineo and in his 180 and I was hooked ever since it was just like, okay, I, I, I don't care what happens. I got to do this. Yeah. So we've done a couple of shows while we've been up here at the Greenville International Seaplane event. And of course, again, there's no finer place to be than sitting on Moosehead here. And, uh, but you know, that what an experience. So here again, that's where we converted between the Alaska experience um, and then coming to Greenville for the seaplane event here by land airplane. Um, you got the bug. Yeah. Oh, it was <laughs> absolutely, definitely the bug. And then, when I when I bought my 180, I have a 1956 uh, 180, uh, and a gorgeous one. I should <laughs> I should add, <laughs> it's uh, it is a uh, it, it was is a it's a nice airplane. But the the first time that I have a little camp, and this is how it ties into uh, New Hampshire. But we have a uh, camp on Mirror Lake in New Hampshire, and uh, before I put it on floats, the 180. Uh, we we fly our mission in the airplane is basically between Manchester, New Hampshire, and up to the Lakes region north of there. It's about as the crow flies, you know, thirty eight forty miles. And um, so, the very first time that I knew I had to move heaven and earth to get floats was when I took off in the winter time because the airplane had air glass skis with it, and I took off in February. And what normally takes an hour and a half, hour and 45 minute drive to our camp turned into a 22 minute flight. And I landed out on the lake in front and I was like, okay, I got to get floats. There's just no, this is a game changer. Yeah. 
Just so amazing. it was skis. So it was you, on skis. So skis. So the first time you landed on Mirror Lake, was where you skis, live, was yeah. on skis. Yeah. Yep. That's amazing. The hard water landing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was great. Hopefully we can put some photos. We had our both of our airplanes at your house uh, uh, a couple months ago, and uh, it is gorgeous. Uh, I, those are some of the favorite air, uh, photos I have of my airplane, quite honestly, was sitting next to yours because they match. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, this is great. So, I mean, here you've gone full route. You've, you've got this family history flying PBYs and, and then being in the military, going to flying really interesting missions, being the youngest 747 pilot. Um, and then we end up getting you transitioned to skis and floats. And uh, now you're doing some commercial operations with Epic Seaplane Adventures as well. Yeah. So um, that all got started when COVID hit. Um, COVID hit, the airlines were parked, shut down. And there we were with, you know, an expensive airplane sitting there doing nothing. And with, and, and, you know, with, with my history background and walking in my father's shoes with Eastern airlines, you know, I was hitting the panic button, you know, like, Oh my God, history's repeating itself here. Mm -hmm. You know, maybe these airlines won't make it through this. So I very quickly just came up with plan B and I applied to get my scenic air tour operator permit. And it was kind of, you know, good timing because the local air tour operator, um, Lakes Region Air Service with Dave French, he uh, he was shutting down because of COVID. Or at least that's what the, the information that I got was. And so he was kind of shutting down and, and moving down to the Florida area. And so my timing was kind of the sweet spot right there with the, the transition. So I applied with the FAA to get my air tour certificate and it just took off and it was way more demand than, you know, my sort of part-time weekend handful of times on the weekend schedule um, could, could do the first year. So we, we flew a lot. Um, we ended up, Flying up here last year, doing tours off the ramp in uh, at Moosehead, and it was a huge success. I mean, we just it took off. So we've scaled back this year quite a bit. I've got a um, started managing that air tour business as more of a part time fun sharing experience, and that's you know I'm 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 doing this for that reason. You know, I'm not I'm not here to make tons of money and. You know, I cover my expenses with You've my, got a day job with my airplane. Right. Yeah. And, and I've got the day job. And, and in fact, they're so short of pilots, you could go out and volunteer any day of the week and go make, you know, plenty of money flying for the airline. Well, we've talked about that, that you can yeah. make a lot more money flying for the airlines, as I know, um, yeah. you know, than going out there and doing this commercial operation. And one of the things that we've had a lot of, you know, pretty really nice, candid conversations about is you feel more of a sense that you're sharing the experience and you're sharing an appreciation for Lake Winnipesaukee when you're down there, uh, which is what we're going to talk about with this, with this dispute that we had or this challenge to our waterway access. But for you, it's more of a sense of, of an obligation to let people see how beautiful the Lake Winnipesaukee region is and to share it with them in a way that most people don't get to see it. And that was your, your, you know, one of the big motivators on this. Oh, it has been an amazing experience with the customers that come and fly with me. Um, you know, I've had, you know, young couples proposing in the airplane. I've had, um, I had, this was this summer and I kind of get emotional talking about it, but uh, this gentleman showed up with a, with a buddy of his and, and he disclosed to me while we were airborne that he only had like two weeks to live. Like he was terminal and that was his bucket list to go fly mm -hmm. around the lake and uh, you know, fly over his grandfather's old place down there. And um, he just wanted to see it one last time from the air and, and, you know, it was, it was an incredible experience to share that with him. I've taken little kids up and they look at you and they're like, wow, I, I would really want to do this someday. And we're so short of pilots right now that it's like, I'm happy to inspire people. To oh yeah. Get yeah. involved. And, and in fact, my son, he's, he's walking right in our footsteps and picking it up and, and he's doing great. I mean, he, he helps me out sometimes and, you know, he's, he's, he's learning. I know he's been active in the, in, in learning how to, 
support the airplane and take care of the passengers and do all the things that need to be done in between flights. And yeah, well, I mean, he, he and, and through this whole process, you know, he's made friends and networked with you guys. And yeah. I know, I know he's, he's, he's going back are, and forth with Slade. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's great. I mean, they're, they're doing the, I, I just, I just can't, I, I just never imagined that this process was going to end up like this. I mean, it was, it, what a crazy, crazy road, how we got to where we are right now. But, uh, you know, it, it's so funny that in today's day and age that somebody just doing something so casually, like what we just described, you know, I want to share this with people, cover my expenses, et cetera. And, and all of a sudden it turns into something that it's not and it gets, Blown, blown way into, out of proportion. Yeah. I mean, it all it takes in today's day and age with the internet and social media is a couple of active agitators to put out some misinformation and then it just becomes true unless you combat it. Yeah. Well, before we get into the fight, let's describe the lake and the uniqueness and, and kind of this setting of Lake Winnipesaukee, because I had never been there until we had done the fight. Yeah. And that's why it was so important to bring the airplane up and actually get to, you know, before I defended the water, I wanted to operate on the water. Yeah. So, and so it was a great opportunity. Winnipesaukee is uh, an old glacier made lake carved out of the Ospie mountain range. It's just south of the presidential range. But um, as you know, coming in from the southwest, when you, when you, when you, you hit that first mountain range, it kind of covers up the expansiveness of the lake. So, um, you know, the uh, Gunstock Mountain Range. And when you come up over it, the, the, the lake just takes up your whole entire windscreen. It's, it's 28 miles long. It's the biggest lake in New Hampshire. Mm-hmm. Um, it, uh, is the third largest lake in new England. I think Sebago and Moosehead are, mm-hmm. are just by volume. Um, Moosehead's the largest in the Eastern United States. And I think, uh, Winnipesaukee is probably number two. Yeah. Uh, with shoreline for with sure. Shoreline. Yeah, yeah. I think Sebago might be volume bigger than Winnipesaukee, but the shore, the shoreline is, is there with all the islands and the nooks and crannies and fingers of the lake and bays. <laughs> and this is, uh, so there, there's a lot of development around the lake. So there's a lot of weekend houses and there's permanent residents that live around the lake, but literally, um, you know, what I saw, everything north of the lake was kind of wilderness or wooded areas. Uh, west of the lake was wooded areas. And we're talking uh, on Golden Pond. If, right. if, if you want to get an idea of the beauty of Lake Winnipesaukee, the, the first lake to the west of the, the lake is where they filmed uh, uh, on Golden Pond. So it, actually in my tour, as we make our little round trip around the lake, I, just, I, I point that out. So Squam Lake yep. is just north west and but they get all the credit for on golden pond but the the trivia behind that is a lot of that movie apparently was filmed on winnipesaukee and i i grew up on winnipesaukee out on melody island my grandfather uh the pby pilot he he and my dad and my uncle built a camp um i think in the 50s uh out on melody island and we spent summers out there my whole entire life. So, you know, I'm third generation local. I went to high school right there in the Wolfboro area. And, uh, you know, so, so when this fight erupted and, and this, this all happened, you know, I, I definitely had a local perspective. It wasn't like I was just coming in as an outsider and just like, Hey, you know, here, I'm going to start something that is going to destroy the area. You know, I definitely respect, I've seen, I've seen what the lake has become. You know, it, it, it used to be all these small homes on the lake, and now there's mega you know, mansions, <laughs> big big mansions that have come in. They, you know, people have come in and and bought four or five of those small camps and knocked them down. And you know, we've got you know Mitt Romney that lives right in on the shoreline there, and then the uh, the French uh, uh, old prime minister he lives back in the cove there, and. Uh, the Bear Complex, the uh, guys who built the uh, Loudon Raceway, they have huge homes right there. And then there's all the Governor's Island homes. and then you The make, Hiltons, you I make, think. Yeah, uh, well, it's actually the Marriott's. Or the Marriott's, yeah. 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 Okay, yeah. I, they, they are so awesome to me. 
that that family keeps to themselves. There's four or five families, and they have a humongous compound there in uh, Tuftonboro. But they, the, the very first time I met them, they just hired me to fly from their beach, and their whole family basically lined up, and we just went one after another after another. They were they were super great. They're great in the community as well. They saved one of the local. Uh, bakeries called the yum yum shop <laughs> they, they they the old man died there and he uh he couldn't uh the son couldn't really afford to to keep it running and they said hey we'll buy it and you keep it going because yeah. all our kids love coming to the yum yum shop right there so. well and this is something that was really important when we had the public hearing and we faced this massive opposition to seaplane operations um it's important to note and and we pointed this out in the hearing that you were a local and most of the people that were probably in opposition to seaplane operations weren't locals. They were probably weekend residents or, or vacation house residents, or they had moved in from, you know, elsewhere on the East coast in the financial district or whatever. This wasn't necessarily, this wasn't like you were the outsider coming in trying to establish a seaplane base. You were a local trying to do what has been enjoyed on that lake since 1912. Right. And so that walks us years of seaplane service right there. Yeah. And they act like it was something brand new, like it never happened here before. And that's what was interesting. So the backstory on Lake Winnipesaukee is there literally has been not only seaplane operations, but commercial seaplane operations since 1912 on the lake. And there has virtually, and we documented this, um, there has been nonstop seaplane operations on the lake um, since 1912. So, you know, we have slides in our presentation and, and what we submitted for evidence um, of, you know, uh, above all, fly with fog. And he flew from the 1920s to the 1940s. And what I thought was funny is, you know, one of the things they were pushing back on was safety. And literally, Bob Fogg's, uh, on his advertisement, when we're looking at it right now, is safe and sane flying yep. <laughs> with with his flying boat on yeah, there. Yeah, he had that little Curtis biplane, and he, he flew the mail around out of Weir's Beach, and he, he would stop in the little places and... And and exactly what you're saying, the irony behind all of this is that some of the most vehement opposition was the, the Camp Belknap area against us. And, you know, they were citing that it was very unsafe, but literally in the book. It, what, we, what we documented yeah. and presented in the public hearing was the very camp, Camp, camp Belknap, that was one of the strongest opponents to allowing us to operate seaplanes in 19 Mile Bay, was one of the very first airmail routes in the United States. And it was served exclusively by seaplanes back in 1925. Right. I mean, it was just incredible. I mean, and there was, was never an incident. There right. was never any issues. Yeah. So uh, in the 1940s, uh, there was a, a biplane, flow plane that was doing commercial operations. That actually lasted until like 1974. Then uh, David, uh, I guess, was it the French? French the French is from Dave 1970s French, yeah. through 2019-ish, yep. something like that. And then uh, you uh, starting up uh, during COVID. And so not only has there been commercial sightseeing and flight scene, uh, there's been mail service, there's been a variety of activities, all seaplane oriented occurring on this lake uh, since 1912. And largely without incidents, there, we have postcards documented with Bob Fogg uh, sitting next to uh, or Mount Washington. Mount Steam Washington. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That, that boat accident, uh, incidentally, uh, uh, the, there were two railroad services that one was in Wolfboro and one was on the uh, Laconia Guilford side and they didn't connect. So they used these boats to get across the lake and move things around. It was the, the history of the lake is amazing. It was an iconic boat. Oh yeah. And here we have all these photos again of seaplanes going back to uh, this one that we're we're looking at right now is 1925. Yeah. So, uh, so there's this huge, huge history of seaplanes um on the lake and uh you know what was odd is there really was not any change of operational characteristics the only thing that was really changing 
was the fact that we had, or you had been, and, and many others in the past had used 19 Mile Bay uh, without it being a designated seaplane base. Right. And so you had a take on that. You thought you wanted to make it safer. Uh, you had a local business operator that wanted to make it a better destination for straight float plane pilots, Manaz. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, boat. so I think the story of how we got here is is definitely worthy of, of, of discussing. It, you know, when, when I got my 180, I wanted to, you know, codify my area, my landing area. So... I just went to the state and asked, right? The Department of Aeronautics went through the process. I'm a pilot. Follow the checklist, follow the procedure, ask the right questions, fill out the right forms, and presto, before I knew it, Mirror Lake was a certified seaplane base, you know, my dock. And um, and, and and now it's on the map, the, the sectional chart. And... Uh, so I became friends with the local uh, 19 Mile Bay Marketplace owner, the Pier 19 Marketplace owner, and they're immigrants from Iran. Before you know, when the fall, mm-hmm. the fall of the Shah, when the Shah fell, um, s- super nice lady. She thought my airplane was really cool. We started talking about things, and and I, she 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 and I discussed how there's no place in New Hampshire, the state of New Hampshire, for an, a seaplane, straight float, to get replenished. You know, and I said, wow, you know, maybe, maybe they could come to your store and get some ice cream or whatever else. And she had talked to me about doing some rides and things. And, and, and you know, I think the misconception out there by the community was that I was going to be doing eight to 10 rides off of their dock, you know, and flying there every single day all summer. So, and and then, and then somebody else put out some misinformation that they were going to start scheduled charters out of there. And, you know, one thing led to another, but the intent was just to, you know, open up that area, reopen up that area, if you will, for, and, for seaplane access. And to increase the standards of the dock and the way that it was set up for life. Right, right. Know. So I explained to her that, hey, we could put this on the chart. You could have a certified landing area. It's free, you know, with, this, with the state, the DOT of aeronautics. And, and, then, and then the FAA comes in behind them and does their certification as well. And then you have a certificate. And that was the process. So... One winter, it was last year, that uh, we met with the Department of Aeronautics. Great people there. Love them to death. And, you know, they, we got to talking about the docking situation there. And, and one of the suggestions, it was just a suggestion, was, you know, hey, maybe that public dock right there, which has had pilings there since literally the 1800s, mm-hmm. um, you know, like a land wharf, um, had pilings there that were, some of them were two feet high, some of them were 10 feet high, and they were just left there. And the suggestion from, you know, to, to make it more seaplane friendly was to go to the town and say, you know, hey, free of charge, we'll, we'll take care of it. Can we knock down a few of these posts? And what that? we're talking about is just topping them off. Yeah, I yeah. mean, it, just chopping them down with a chainsaw, yeah. basically. I mean, taking it from, you know, very dangerous height for a tail and wing down to, you know, you could still tie up to it, but just so it's safer. And we're not affecting the dock in any way because this is kind of like a land bridge. Right, it, it is. Just, it's just a land. And point super point. shallow on the one side that we were making the proposal on. But so <clears throat> I have to sort of be careful because the, the politics of it all. I'm not a very good politician, but the, uh, you know, the discussion was had with the town selectmen of this proposal and, and one of the town selectmen were like, what do you mean uh, a landing area, airport? You, what? And, and, and they were taken aback by why I didn't come to them and discuss, you know, ask, ask their permission really, or not they. This individual was very taken aback. And, and, and they felt like we were kicking over some hornet's nest out there to – you know, amongst the townspeople. And, and I just, 
I, I whether it's from being naive or or just not knowing the process of any of this, you know, other than going to the Department of Aeronautics and just saying, hey, can we please apply for a landing area? And that's what we did. And they made the suggestion to go over to the town and say, hey, maybe we could knock down a couple of these posts. Well, that created a massive... A very innocent... Uh, I, we, we went over there and, and we visited the site, obviously, before the hearing and and took photos of it, and and I looked at all the nails and bolts yep. sticking out yep. of these pilings, and um, it wasn't affecting the boaters. They weren't really using them. It's really shallow there, yep. and it wasn't going to create any situation. I mean, we need a nice padded area to pull the, the uh, floats up to, so we weren't going to do anything to the dock that would in any way interfere with boat operations if they wanted to, but we're literally, I think we identified three pilings. Right. I told, you know, yeah. with three pilings, yep. uh, and all you needed to do was take a couple of feet off to take them down to ground level or, or dock level, and it's really ground because it was earth there, right. um, and just top them. Right. And, and, and there's two, two things going on here in this conversation. One is the town, which is completely separate, right? So there's, the jurisdiction is on the land. The other is the water, which was the state, and that this, this, you know, multifaceted protest, if you will, um, we we actually intercepted a email that went out from the the activists that were against this, and 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 it was amazing to me because um, you know they had called for you know reasonable organization against us. But then um, one of the things in there was some illegal things that they were suggesting with interfering with the lawful operation. Putting boats of, in the middle of the channel yeah, and stuff like and, that. And, yeah. and preventing us. And the one, the one thing that the town's uh, selectmen that I really did respect, uh, I thought they did a good job in doing their due diligence. Again, the town issue, not the water issue. But, you know, the concerns were raised about blocking the fireboat because the fireboat was out at the end of the wharf. And if a wing, you know, et cetera, would stick over and, and block a fire engine from coming up the wharf, you know, and, and we came and we did a demonstration and we, you know, talked to the police, we talked to the fire, we talked to everybody that was involved. And, you know, the, the townspeople would, would make arguments like, well, you can't obstruct a public dock with your wing. And, you know, we, we talked them through that and then, you know, it, throughout this process, you and I have laughed many times, you know, you make one argument, they come up with an argument, and then you go, okay, that's great. But then you ask the what about question, uh, mm -hmm. you know. It's it, funny that it's the like, airplane is obstructing the dock, but a boat that's docked at the exact same place is not obstructing the dock. Or a dumpster <laughs> or a that dumpster, they put yeah. on the dock for the islanders to bring their track, like, doesn't a dumpster represent a bigger obstacle to the fireboat than than yeah. an airplane that's a pilot is standing there at the, so, you know, it was, it was a heck of a battle, but, uh, you know, they, they eventually came up with the nuclear option, which was to petition the state safety, uh, the, the, the safe, the, the board department of safety, of safety. department of safety, yeah. um, to completely ban from point to point, from Chase's Point to Sawyer Point, the entire bay. Which of, would be the only place in Lake, Lake Winnipesaukee that has any regulation like that on seaplanes. It, it, it yeah. would have been a precedent-setting cancer that could spread. And that's it, where you and I came in, and, and I, I just, you know, I, I could not lose. I could not have my name on this as losing that so we dug in and we did our research and got the data and the statistics and went right down their petition point by point by point talking counterpoint of all their arguments that they tried to make and and i think we did an excellent job and they they showed up with a lot of emotion and a lot of misinformation like what were we were, i think well, I th let's let's talk about what their their opposition was so yeah. They petitioned the state to close or, or to ban seaplanes. And the ban, generally, it had four real big things that they were concerned about. Uh, number one, they were using the safety of the general public and boaters and swimmers. So that was a very encompassing 
the 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 safety of the general public had many points to it but it 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 related to the uh camp belknap uh to the campers it related to the locals it related to swimmers boaters paddle boarders kayakers it 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 was a, a very comprehensive thing uh, then they were also concerned about invasive species, which is funny because the bay is literally infected. <laughs> it does. It has milfoil in it. And, um, and, and when we, yeah, I mean, if if you want to circle back to that after that, uh, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but yeah. you know, the they they did not have any data on where the invasive species, the origin of the invasive and we did species. actually. Right. I could map it out, right? And so then they were concerned about uh, noise. Uh, so the noise that the, the seaplanes would create. And then the last one, which was kind of the Hail Mary, was to, you know, go after the sense that uh, loons are, 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 let's see, very highly thought after or, or thought uh, about uh, in, in the Northeast here uh, for good reason. They're an amazing uh, creature and, and they inhabit. Matter of fact, we had loons out here in the in uh, outside our cabin this morning. And they're they're amazing birds, and uh, you know we pride ourselves in being good stewards. But they they attacked us, saying that seaplanes would be detrimental to the reproduction and survival of loons. That was kind of the big heartstring one that that came out. And and it was funny on that note. The uh, I, I think the people who are in opposition and bringing up the loons could not fathom the fact that. I think every seaplane pilot in the world is an environmentalist. We're good right? stewards like we, by nature. We are out there trying to preserve. That's why we fly to these remote lakes. Exactly. That's why we do these things is, you know, we're conservationists, we're hunters, we're fishermen, we're, we're wildlife experts. We, we, we seek this out to preserve it. I mean, it's funny. I volunteer with the Loon Preservation Committee in our town, and and I take care of the nest that uh, you know the floating raft nest now. And uh, the, it, I I just think that when you walk into those places and you're like, yeah, I'm the seaplane guy, they're like, ooh, yeah, you're like the antichrist. Whoa, <laughs> like this. Wait a minute, this guy really cares. Yeah, this guy really like he. He's going to help us out, actually. Like, this is great. Well, we surprised them because the Seaplane Pilots Association became a corporate partner of the Loon Preservation Committee. They're yeah. on the, uh, I started interacting with uh, Harry Vogel, their biologist. And, uh, you know, we were in communication with the Maine Department of Inland Fisheries, uh, asking them about studies that existed or did not exist and what their opinions were about the impact of seaplanes. We were, so we had breakfast this morning down on the water, downtown Greenville, Maine, and there were seaplanes landing and taking off, and we had loons interacting, and we were looking at pictures and discussing it. All weekend, we had 100 seaplanes here in downtown Greenville, Maine, in a very congested little piece of water, and we had loons in the water all weekend. And, you know, this was the... Uh, so for them to push back on us, and, and especially when we're talking about wakeboard boats and ski boats and cigarette boats and all these other watercraft that are also accessing the water, making noise and traveling at high speed, it was really interesting to have them single us out as the great uh, threat to the loons when the, the largest, you know, we weren't, there, there's no even mention of seaplanes uh, in the studies in most cases. And the biggest threat to the loons is leaded fishing tackle and loss of habitat, right. which they haven't Human done. encroachment on their habitat. Which they've done nothing to protect on right. Lake Winnipesaukee. Right. It's completely developed. And if there was some sense of real environmental conservation, they should have you know, limited the amount of development on this lake, in my mind. Right. And during the hearing, you know, I thought it was, none of it was humorous, really. It wasn't funny. No, it, it wasn't was as funny. Yeah. But, but, the, but the, the, it was kind of funny that they started off with the former Marine Patrol captain who, his very first slide about, and he was talking about how busy the bay was, like incredibly busy. And his very first slide was an aerial shot of the bay where you could see everything. 
and he took his laser pointer and pointed out the rocks on the north side and how it's this and you know over here you've got you know a camp Belknap and 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 I'm like thinking to myself the entire time how ironic that the best place that this person could tell us about the bay was from the sky mm-hmm. that's our view mm-hmm and what allows us to determine the traffic on the water right. and avoid it. And if and it's make a too busy, we just don't go there. We don't go. And we did that because I wanted to land in the bay. We were very, uh, we'll, we'll just say we were very determined that I do a landing in the bay. And we yes. went there and I circled several times. Yeah. And I and I was determined, but I was also very patient because I, I was the last one that was going to land there right. uh, and, and have it be an unsafe condition. Sure. And I mean, so we all do that. And, and I think that, you know, the general public needs to hear that, that, you know, we, we don't, it, it's so easy to demonize something that you don't understand. And there are human beings flying the seaplanes around, you know, it was, it, I was, I was going to, dovetail in the conversation with about the loons with the uh with the marine patrol guy but this is kind of a segue into the the safety part of it where you know they brought the in the uh, safety expert in and he talked about the town resources how mm-hmm. you know if there was a crash that they couldn't handle and he's and he, i remember him saying the word gory or something he's like if you've ever been to a airplane crash it's really gory and and i was thinking to myself you know the average capacity of a seaplane is four people right and if a seaplane had an accident you you have four passengers right but if a if two pontoon boats out on a with six to eight people yeah you now you have 16 people that are all in the water after a crash. And, and so, one of the biggest causes of boating incidents on Lake Winnipesaukee is intoxication. Yes. And nighttime, nighttime, because they have a lot of accidents. We had photos of some of the accidents that had happened at night. So right. let's just, let's just put this into perspective. And again, these are the kinds of numbers and research that we do before we go into one of these battles. And I spent about 80 hours uh, researching it. And, and I, I really enjoy it because you know, when you have a challenge like this, for me as the executive director of the association, it provides me a chance to, when you do the research, you know, every time you do this to have to do one of these challenges, you learn more. And so there are 101, as of 2020, there were 101,312 3, registered boats in the state of New Hampshire, 101,312 uh, boats in new hampshire and that's any boat over 12 feet in length um and as of the same period 2020 there were 269 licensed seaplane pilots um and that meant that there were 376 boats in new hampshire for every one seaplane pilot and then you take this a step further we did our best estimate to figure out how many seaplanes actually were most likely resident in the state. And the best number we could come up with was about 30 seaplanes are resident in the state of New Hampshire. So if you take 101,000 plus boats to 30 seaplanes, that meant that there were 3,377 boats in the state for every one seaplane. And, and then when you looked at the boating statistics, you know, one of the things we did and we pointed out um, was what are the accident rates and how, do, you know, we want to really honestly look at these things. So when we look at a challenge like this, we promise transparency and honesty. And we went into this meeting promising transparency and, and honesty. So uh, looking at the deaths from boating accidents in the state of New Hampshire, from 2016 to 2020, we're only talking a four-year period. There were 25 fatalities from boating accidents. And then on Lake Winnipesaukee, they have a major, a 100-year-old motorcycle event. Um, third which is, largest in the country. Yeah, yeah third yeah. largest in the country. 
uh, Laconia Motorcycle Week, yep. and it's been going on next year. I think it's the 100-year anniversary for this. We looked at the accident statistics, and in most, the only thing we had to look at was the fatalities. So from 2001 to 2021, 20-year period, there are 51 fatalities at Lake Winnipesaukee directly related to Laconia Motorcycle Week only. Wait, that's <laughs> not relevant. That's not relevant. You can't say that. That's not relevant. And so... Right? They, I mean, that's what they want to... That's what they want. Don't even talk about that, right? And so they were trying to ban seaplanes. Again, one of the four major points was safety. So looking at the same period, 2001 to 2022, a 20-year period, zero seaplane fatalities in New Hampshire. So what we argue... And what we did argue was if we can demonstrate that you are experiencing this level of fatalities from boats, 25 fatalities in just a four-year period, 51 accidents from motorcycles at a one-week event uh, each year for 20 years, and we have zero seaplane fatalities, how on earth can you say that you're using safety as the reason why you want to create a ban when we have a perfect safety record from a fatality statistic and they even said we they called us liars when we per, uh, when we presented these right. numbers yeah, and said we were contorting the, the data right so yeah, i mean it, it, and you could you could go through every one of those arguments that which, which we did you know it was like a, 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 they said it was unsafe it was too too busy uh, and then and then the very next breath They'd say, we have this pristine loon sanctuary here, most successful loon sanctuary in the state. And I'm like, well, wait a minute. I thought you just said it was really busy and really active. And like, you know, the loon, now you're saying it, it, it's really quiet and really pristine and you can't bring airplanes in here because you're going to scare the loons. So, I mean, we picked through their bullet points one by one by one. And, you know, I, I think, you know, we we can talk more about all these bullet points, but for me, the real revelation when this victory happened was not for me. It wasn't for me. Like I said, you know, like, like it, what if I had become the, the poster child of shutting down Lake Winnipesaukee, right? Mm-hmm. So we had to win this. And I was like, oh my God. So we dig in, we do this, but this isn't, this victory is not for me. It's not. It's not, for, it's not even for 19 Mile Bay. This victory is for the seaplane pilots because we have basically come up with the gold standard bullet, you know, template that now sets a precedence that other states can use this document, this 29-page document. I think the state of New Hampshire did a great job. Like, I, I, we have to reach out to the, the, the office and, and just at least tip our hats to them to say thank you like this is this is an amazing document that they they they've put out and the the department of aeronautics did a great job they were super supportive of all the process but at the same time i never felt like they weren't impartial no i mean they maintained a, a completely neutral position on it i tell you what i felt so confident with the research that i had done yep and then yet when we walked in this school gymnasium and we are greeted by 350 people wearing runway no way right. t-shirts right i mean this was a, a very highly organized we tried to be civil we tried to shake their hands yep. you know again i painted a picture that we as seaplane you know both of you and I own waterfront homes. We own boats. You know, we are just like them. We have the same concerns. Right. We're part of their community. Right. And all it takes is one of us to mess it up, right? Like the, the, most, the most emotional testimony for their side was that woman that stood up. And I felt bad for her because you could tell she, she was, you know, she, she definitely wasn't making her story up. It was, it was dramatic that she had to paddle out of the way of someone who was... That was her perceived right. need. But yeah. but it was not... It turns out through my investigation that she thought that that was a seaplane. 
and it was a weight shift powered glider on floats on floats so, so we get branded by that and yeah. it, and so we need to police our own with our activities and things like that to where you know hey like and that's a whole nother discussion right. because as we saw the operator i think probably flying around yeah, and yeah. we pointed him out yeah. and so with the weight shift uh uh amphibious airplanes or, or float airplanes you know they don't require a license right. they're ultralights right. and unfortunately that's one of the hardest groups for us to attract as members to try to create good stewardship and right. to try to get them to be good neighbors when they're flying and so yes they're a seaplane i don't want to totally say they're not a seaplane but unfortunately a lot of people in that community that are flying these ultralight weight shift uh you know, trikes on, on floats and stuff. Unfortunately, they're not engaged with us because they, they don't believe they're seaplane pilots right. or that they're regulated. Right, right. But, uh, you know, it, it was intimidating because we had maybe 30, 35 supporters. And I have to give a shout out to AOPA and yep. the RAF the and, yep. and uh, Maine Aeronautics Association. The New Hampshire Pilots Association. New, New Hampshire Pilots guys, Association. Yeah. You know, everyone came out in support and participated in the meeting. But again, to paint the picture, we were outnumbered 15 to 1. Yeah, there were a lot of people there. Uh, and, and we tried to be so professional and courteous and they just were not having any part of it. Right. They, well, I, I also got the impression that, and, and even though this battle wasn't foregone conclusion, right, but the, the state of New Hampshire is very um, small town politics. Mm -hmm. And this was part of the process. They needed to vent and that's, they needed to have their voice heard. And, and, and that's the way we do it up there. And, you know, I think that, it's good to have, you know, such an intimate local, you know, politic like that to where, you know, it works. I mean, it, you know, the live free or die state, right? So, and it's just. I, I lost my confidence in our presentation when I saw the temperature of the room. Yeah. And I, I wondered uh, if the state attorney that was overseeing the uh, hearing, I, I just, you know, I couldn't help but feel when you had that large of a group of people that were so passionate, yep. was logic going to prevail? Was well, our argument going to actually be heard, even though, and, and this was the striking thing that we all noticed. Number one, the, the, the people that spoke, many of them were highly groomed. Um, it there was, were lawyers uh, there. They, they were very uh, whipped up into a frenzy. And, you know, it was a very emotional hearing and I just didn't know. I lost my confidence, or I'll say I I, I had high hopes, but I, I wasn't confident at that point that even though we had all of the data, we had done all the research, we made a, an incredibly strong case, I didn't know that they weren't going to cave to that public sense of, you know, that public sense of, and, and we mentioned this, and it's actually mentioned in, in the uh, uh, uh the, the order, the, the yep. order yep. that it was not in my backyard. And, and they quoted me by saying right. that, it, that it was a not in my backyard mentality. Yeah. Um, and I didn't know that that wasn't going to prevail. Right. Yeah. And that, and you know what, I, I, as I sit here and we're recording this and we're celebrating this victory, I, in the back of my mind, I'm like, what's next? There could be, like, they, they are, can, they can uh, file, file something else. Yeah. I mean, like they, this isn't necessarily they, over. Right. And so the, the victory while we're celebrating it is a little metered right. uh, because it might not be the end. Right. But you know, I, what I do feel confident is I, I don't feel confident that they can produce any numbers on safety. I don't, I feel confident that there is no loon study that right. shows us. And matter of fact, it's important for you to realize we literally, you know, as part of our conservation and stewardship, we're doing, and it was funny because they mentioned in the hearing that the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service was so concerned about invasive species that they're currently doing a study. Well, it's a study that SPA, the Seaplane Pilots Association, has been very involved in and I deal with on a daily basis, uh, we're engaged in that study in SPA, the Seaplane Pilots Association is actually helping fund that aquatic right. invasive species right. study. And we offered to the Loon Preservation Committee that we would develop with them and help them provide them with pilots to do a study. Right. 
because I'm very confident that it's not going to show results that seaplanes are any more intrusive to the loons than, than other activities. Well, that are- unfortunately, and, and this was one of the best social media posts right after it came out, was somebody on there said, fortunately, cool head, cooler heads prevail. Yeah. You know, they, they used logic, and there was a process. And, and all I have to say is, like, thank God it didn't go to a vote to the townspeople. Because yeah, right? that would like, have... Uh... We don't know. We, we don't know. I mean, there's a lot of people there that were activists, you know, like homeowners that were spreading misinformation and things like that, whether it was intentional or not intentional, you know. But I, I, I wasn't going to stand up at that meeting. You and I had discussed this many times because, you know, like if you're defending yourself, you know, as, as a witness, you never take the stand, right? But they, they got up so many times and they were like, I'm not against seaplanes. I'm just against commercial operations here. And and, it, and they're going to so, build an airline right, terminal yeah. and there's going to be big planes right, flying in right. here. And, and I had to stand up and just say, you know, all of this could have been prevented if you guys had talked to me. Mm-hmm. And I, I think maybe only two or three of the opposition had ever had a face-to-face conversation with me. And, and, it, and it would have just you know, put water on the fire and they would have been like, Hey, you know, so-and-so is spreading misinformation. We should maybe calm down about this. If they had a desire to to actually have an open mind. Yeah. Right. And, and so I guess the takeaways on this, uh, this challenge that we had is how to deal with the public, uh, how to do things correctly. Number one, I think one of the takeaways you and I identified was yeah, maybe it would have been okay. Uh, it, it would have been smart to go out to the town fathers and just tell them of of the plans. Yep. And and you know, in your defense, uh, that's not the normal process necessarily. Right. It's not required. Right. And the state literally suggested to you that you file for a commercial seaplane base, even though it really didn't represent much of a change. Right. To- it was just checking of an innocent check on a box. Yeah. It's per. It, you know, now certified 19 mile bay, but the it, it's so we do have a certified seaplane base by the FAA. We do, and it has been officially uh, approved and certified. Yeah, so uh, Pier 19 Marketplace is the owner or slash holder of the certificate for the the water landing area there. Yep. So we need to walk lightly with these community groups. Uh, but at the same time, uh, I don't think when I saw the temperature of that room, I don't know how much goodwill um, would have changed things. Right. And, and and that's really unfortunate. I mean, that's the part that hurt me is that we went in there with goodwill and, you know, we tried to shake their hands even after the hearing. Right. And and they were like, I'm not shaking your right. hand. They don't want the facts. They don't want the discussion. They don't want, they just want it to go away. I thought the most genuine and open testimonies from the opposition was when time was running short and the attorney addressed all of them and said, all right, everybody get up there, say your name, your address, and you've got like 15 seconds. Yeah. And the one the most honest testimony was from the one woman that got up, said her name or address, and said, I don't mind seaplanes. I just don't want them here. Yeah. I mean, that was it in a nutshell. Mm-hmm. And, and I was like, there you go. There, That is the most honest person in the room right there. Yeah. Because they didn't care. And we actually got to a time limit where they had to shut the meeting down. Yeah. Yep. And uh, they were alternating between... Uh, pro seaplane and, and anti seaplane people, but again, we were outnumbered like fifteen to one, right. so we ran out of people. Right? Um, but they, they uh, even cut you off. Yeah, and I thought I was going to be like the designated speaker. Yeah, sure. So again, um, I think it's important. We've got several uh, active issues that we're fighting around the country. We've got challenges. We just uh, lost a, a desire. We, we've been working with Army Corps of Engineers in Georgia to open up Lake Lanier. We just got the latest uh, decline uh, to our, our request to open the lake to seaplanes. Uh, we have a lot of uh, active issues going around the country. Invasive species are always coming up at every uh, fight that we do, it seems like. Noise is a common complaint, safety, and we're on it. And every time we go into these one, uh, these challenges, quite honestly, we learn um, how to do them better. And, and so it's a great learning opportunity for, for us as an organization. I think, I think, again, I keep pointing back to this 
gold standard document that we have now. You and I just talked about this. If if they exclude seaplanes, they are excluding seven hundred thousand pilots. Yeah. And what I thought was really nice that the state recognized in the review. They did. They mentioned it. They mentioned that um, given, uh, and and we always talk about this, given the fact that we had the data that supported the safety and everything else, and the, the, the sheer number of other user groups that have access to Winnipesaukee and 19 Mile Bay, that it would have been discrimination to exclude us from access. Yes. And and that was one of the things that we obviously talked about in the hearing. Right. And we said, you know, it, this is blatant discrimination if you do not allow us to operate here because you have every other user group that's totally unregulated enjoying this water. Well, and the irony is, is that the pulse of the community that was there to, to protest us when you use the D word, the discrimination, oh, there was a gasp. Yeah. Like, how dare you say the we discriminate against you? And that's exactly what they were doing. You were calling the kettle black. Yeah. And it was, um, it, I, I remember the gasp in the room. It, were, yeah, it was they, the reaction. And, I was like, what did I just say? Right, the attorney <laughs> goes, hey, we need everybody to be quiet. You know? Yeah. The, the guy running the, running the uh, hearing. And it was, what did I say that was mischaracterizing the situation? Right, because it was so it was elementary totally from, from yeah. us. It was, from our perspective, it was like, it's exactly discrimination. And, and, and when you said it, it was, it was almost like the first time they'd ever heard it. Like, like you had touched a hot stove or something. And it just yeah. was amazing. So offensive was your comment. It was, it was incredible. Well, TR, you and I have developed a friendship out of this that far exceeds anything that we had before. Um, I look forward to going back and enjoying uh, accessing Lake Winnipesaukee and 19 Mile Bay and visiting Manaz and thanking her for all of her incredible support for the seaplane community. If you do go into 19 Mile Bay, make sure you walk across the street and go shopping at her little general store there uh, because she has been a huge, she threw a banquet for us that night, fireworks show and and of course, we were measuring the sound of fireworks, and we went out there and did right. some noise studies with Super your airplane. Uh, and anybody who needs information, um, I am the official manager of the uh, the landing area. Um, we'll be updating that with through the FAA website and database, and um, you know we'll probably have a little bit of a. Uh, We'll have a feature in the next issue of Water Flying. We're going to talk about it some more, more yep. extensively than we can do because we're going to print, so we can't get it in this one. But uh, we want to be respectful. We do want to um, stress that if you do go to my 19 Mile Bay, we want to be respectful and we want to show them that we're not the bad guys. So if you go there, be on your best behavior and let's uh, prove them wrong right. with the way that we operate so uh, we hope you've enjoyed uh, the hearing this discussion. Uh, it's consumed a lot of TR and I's lives over the past several months, uh, and we don't know that it's completely done. But out of it, I've learned uh, a whole new appreciation for Lake Winnipesaukee, learned the history of Lake Winnipesaukee that I never knew and, and how much it was involved in seaplanes. Uh, it's a beautiful lake. We got an opportunity to do some uh, uh, formation flight around the lake. Yeah, and- that was great. And uh, uh, so uh, I'm just, we're thrilled that we had a positive outcome. It might not be over. You never know when these things are going to, it's been quiet, but we don't know. It's only been a week since the. Almost too quiet. Yeah. But uh, TR, it's great to see you, uh, you know, here in Maine. Uh, It's great to see a smile on your face because you had not been smiling. (laughs) It was pretty intense for a while. No doubt. No doubt. And uh, thanks for joining us. I know you had a, a pretty aggressive schedule, but it was really important to talk about these advocacy issues, um, how we approach the battle. And it's important for people to know and there be a public record of what the opposition was and how we approached it and how we feel about it. So uh, we hope you've uh, enjoyed this. Uh, TR, again, thank you. And thank, uh, thank everybody out there. Thank you guys. And I just can't thank the seaplane pilots association enough to to come up and you know it was like sounding an alarm and we rallied the <laughs> troops and went at it like two veterans you know yeah. we got a mission and hey let's get this done and focus on it and and we completed it we were successful so thank you too so it was amazing 
Well, thank you. So we hope you've enjoyed this issue, uh, this episode of Waterfine. Uh, please uh, keep listening. Uh, tell your friends about us, uh, especially if even if they're land plane pilots. Let's convert them to seaplane pilots. And until next time, fly safe and fly often, friends. We'll see you soon. We are so glad you joined us today. If you like today's show, I highly encourage you to join the Seaplane Pilots Association and become a member of the largest seaplane community in the world. Members receive Water Flying, the only full-color glossy magazine dedicated to the seaplane community. And it's available in both printed and digital form. Your membership also includes access to the Water Landing Directory app, which has the Seaplane Flight School directory and a calendar of seaplane events not only here in the United States, but around the world. The association hosts regular educational workshops, safety seminars, and gatherings for seaplane pilots and anyone with a passion for seaplanes. So look us up online at seaplanes.org, join our community, and support our mission of protecting and promoting water flying.